Well, hello again. Uh, who was here last week? Majority of people around. Last week we began a series looking at the uh, book of Ezekiel, and we said a few things about it. One, it's not very popular. Barely anyone ever preaches on it. Uh, two, if people do preach on it, they pick out one or two verses or three or four chapters and preach on those. And yet, there's something about understanding the whole book as a whole that teaches us something about God. And then uh, from understanding God a bit more, we're able to understand ourselves a bit more. So uh, our task uh, today is to carry on uh, with the sort of overview of Ezekiel. And uh, last week, we learned that uh, the book of Ezekiel uh, was written in a sort of similar time to a much more famous character, uh, Daniel. Um, Daniel, who goes into exile. And Ezekiel's writing before and after that deportation that took young Daniel into Nebuchadnezzar's land of Babylon. There's been some bad kings along the way, and the last of them is Zedekiah, the puppet king of Judah, who uh, was allowed to rule in Jerusalem with just a small army, but the city was besieged, and Zedekiah was captured by Nebuchadnezzar's army, and they killed each of his sons before his eyes, so that he would see the royal line had come to an end and then they removed his eyes, so the last thing he saw was his son being destroyed, and then Nebuchadnezzar orders the destruction of Jerusalem, including, of course, already its temple. And so the big question is, how can we worship God now we're miles away from where we used to be? And probably the most relevant thing of this is, is thinking about two cities, uh, Jerusalem and Babylon, and thinking about the culture that uh, we now live in, in, in our country, compared to the culture of 50 or 80 or 100 years ago, and you could say that the culture of 50, 80, 100 years ago was a bit more like being in Jerusalem. We had a reigning monarch where we were happy to sing God Save the Queen, the, the, uh, the king at the time of the World War orders a national day of prayer and fasting uh, at the time of Dunkirk, um, and before that there's a sort of sense of the Sunday school movement, and generally what we, we call Christendom. We were a Christian country and had a Christian empire around the world. We were like those in Jerusalem. We knew who we were and what we were doing. And now looking in culturally, we are what they call post-Christian, uh, or if you like, in exile, we're in Babylon. And we have to work out how can we still worship God uh, when we're in a strange land. So Ezekiel. And I'm going to be reading again, as I was last week, from uh, Unlocking the Bible, a unique overview of the whole Bible by David Pawsons. So it was around this time that Ezekiel was called to preach, even though he was hundreds of miles away in the land of Babylon. From the start, God told Ezekiel that he would make his forehead like flint. Nothing would be able to discourage him. When the people got harder and harder and didn't want to hear, he would need to be single-minded in following through with God's commission. And that's uh, probably very apposite for us today, unless we want to become just like the culture around us, there's a degree to which we need these foreheads like flints. His message came in part through what is known as apocalyptic language, which means an unveiling of that which has been previously hidden, particularly in the future, and is necessarily figurative and symbolic. So there's lots of weird stuff in the book of Ezekiel, is what he's saying. It's a form of prophecy, but it's more visual than verbal. It's very symbolic and very dramatic. Ezekiel and the end of Daniel are the best examples of this in the Old Testament, and Revelation is, of course, like that in the New Testament. So like all prophets, Ezekiel has supernatural sight, insight, foresight, and oversight. 
he was able to look down on the world from God's perspective and see the unfolding of his purposes. Space is our first heading, space. Ezekiel saw things happening in Jerusalem when he was hundreds of miles away in Babylon. That's quite cool, isn't it? Pre-TV era, he was given vision of what was going on. So modern scholars imagine that he must have kept going back to Jerusalem to see what was happening. But through the Holy Spirit, Ezekiel could actually see events in his homeland. On one occasion, while he was preaching in Babylon, he had a vision of a man in Jerusalem dropping dead. And weeks later, he heard that the man had indeed died in Jerusalem at exactly the moment he'd seen him drop dead in his vision. It's like one of these sort of fantasy programs on Netflix. So you can see what's going on elsewhere. It's a space. Secondly, time. Ezekiel was also able to see into the future. The Bible is a book full of predictions about the future, and around 27% of the verses in the Bible contain predictions, with Ezekiel having a higher percentage than other biblical books. Ezekiel and Daniel have the highest percentage of predictions about the future in the whole of the Old Testament. You sort of think about that. These are books written to the people in exile um, in a sort of time where there's a massive question mark about the present. And in that time, God gives them the ability to look forward to what will be the end of the exile and beyond. So about three quarters of the predictions in Ezekiel have already come true to the letter. The statistical chances of such thing happening are apparently, I've not done it myself, but one to 75 million. There are 735 separate events predicted in the Bible. And some of these are predicted only once or twice and one over 300 times. Of these 735 events, 593, which is 81%, have already happened. Um, And the Bible has been 100% accurate so far. The remaining 19% of its predictions have yet to be fulfilled, but we can be sure they will be. So there you are. If you'd like to do the maths to check on that, that's your homework for the week. So space and time, and in uh, 33 different periods. Ezekiel's prophecies were given in three separate phrases or phases, And in each period of time, he deals with different subject matters. In the first period, chapters 4 to 24, uh, the most depressing of the three, he was aged between 30 and 33. He made the dreadful announcement that Jerusalem would be totally destroyed. And understandably, this is the section of his book that no one quotes. Indeed, very few people could quote any part of the book. The first period of prophecy was before the first siege of Jerusalem, after which the city was under Babylon's control without being destroyed. And the second time Ezekiel prophesies was in the 11th or 12th year of his exile when he was 36 to 37. This period of prophecy is in chapters 25 to 32. The time Ezekiel prophesied not about Jerusalem, but about the nations around her who had taken advantage of the fact that she was now under Babylonian control and were glad to see Israel finished. Even today, Israel is surrounded completely by people who would love to see her destroyed. The next major event came in 587 BC, 587 BC, when Jerusalem was totally destroyed. And this is a particularly sad bit in the book if you read it through. At exactly the same time, Ezekiel lost his wife in Babylon. But God commands the prophet not to weep because at the very minute she died, Jerusalem would also fall. His refusal to weep was symbolic of how Israel should feel about what happened to Jerusalem. That is completely numb. He was told to record the date of his wife's death in his diary so he could match it with the news from his homeland. And of course, the dates were exactly the same. So by the time the news comes to him of the fall of Israel, he's several weeks into his grief. 
three years after his wife had died and 13 years since he last prophesied, Ezekiel starts to prophesy again when he was about 50 years of age. During the intervening period of silence, God had told him that his tongue would stick to the roof of his mouth, preventing speech until God released it. Now, for those of you who are preachers in the room, this is quite seminal, isn't it? You know, we say, God, please use me when we uh, start an internship or go for ordination or something like that. It doesn't cross our mind that God might want to stick our tongue to the roof of our mouth for the better part of a decade, silencing uh, what we see as our great gift um, for the good of his overall purposes and plan. But this time he uh, prophesies for one year, uh, and now the whole of his message focuses on the return home. For example, he said that one day the Valley of Dry Bones would come together and be a mighty army. It's all positive optimism, looking forward to a good future, and that's chapters 33 through 39. And then chapters 40 to 48 talk about the restoration of the temple in Jerusalem. However, Ezekiel died without ever seeing the temple or Jerusalem again. He was buried in a tomb in Babylon at a place called Kifi in modern-day Iraq. So that's the three periods. The really depressing one, the uh, equally depressing one, and then the hopeful one. And then a refrain. There is one phrase that appears 74 times in Ezekiel's prophecy, which is, then you will know that I am the Lord. Then you will know I'm the Lord. It's repeated with slight variation in sections B, C, D of the book. In section B, the wording is, you will know that I'm the Lord. But in section C, which deals with God's revenge on the neighbors of Judah, the refrain is, then they will know that I'm the Lord. When in section D, Ezekiel moves on to the good news about the return from exile in Babylon, the wording is, then the nations will know that I'm the Lord. In other words, when God brings the Jews back to the land, the whole, the whole world will know that God is the Lord, because humanly speaking, it's impossible to reestablish the state of Israel. So the three variations of this refrain tell us, first, that the people of Israel were not very sure of God, hence the phrase, then you will know. Also, the neighbors of Judah were not very sure that the God of Israel exists, hence they will know. And finally, the whole world was not very sure whether there was a God, hence then the nations will know. And that's sort of how the book pans out uh, over time. Um, we'll uh, come back into more detail in this next week. Um, but what, what do we take away from this uh, today? Well, I mentioned a couple of things already. One is the forehead-like flint that um, was read out in uh, Lydia's reading earlier. I think I said last week, I can remember sitting in a lecture room in a university, undergraduate university, uh, looking at the Old Testament, and I just decided to join the Church of England, and I felt God say to me, I will make your forehead like flint, so that you will be unshakable. And just uh, yesterday, I was uh, meeting with a friend from a previous uh, church that I worked at. He's, he's now ordained and doing church planting in the north of England. And uh, he sent me a lovely text after we'd met, and he said... Um, something that um, he remembered of me back in those days in terms of my attitudes. Um, and I was like, oh my goodness me, there's a gap between what I see in myself now and what he remembers of me then. And I was thinking, God, Lord, please help my forehead to remain like flint so that I can get through the pressures of life. Um, so, so, so the first thing is, if God's given you an ability to sort of push through the culture around us, to stay faithful to him, to be one of those people who knows that he is the Lord, then don't let your forehead get blunted. Um, 
You don't have to put a cushion on it. You don't have to make it more palatable to people around you. You don't have to make it nicer. If he's made it like flint, there's a good reason for it. Keep it like flint, and you'll be able to keep pointing people to who God is. So don't worry and acclimatize to what's going on around. Don't let attrition come in. Don't let um, eroding come in. Keep your forehead like flint. That's That's the first thing. And the second thing is this sort of crescendo that then the nations will know that I'm Lord. And there's an inevitability about history that we see in the book of Ezekiel. God is not scared or nervous that Jerusalem is about to fall. He's not scared or nervous that the uh, Babylonians are going to come in and destroy Jerusalem. He's not scared or nervous that the other nations around are going to take advantage of the situation. He doesn't look in with angst and anxiety about the church in the UK either. God's not up in heaven going, I wonder if they're going to turn back to me one day. He's not sort of asking the angels, go on, take a bet. Do you think it's going to be all right in the end? He's not wringing his head and going, oh, it's gone wrong. I really wish I'd come up with a better plan than Jesus. No, he's utterly confident in the end of the story, just as we've seen in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, 81% of these prophecies have come to pass. So God knows the end from the beginning, and he knows that it's going to be all right on the night. The night being the day of the Lord. We'll hear about uh, more of that as we go through Ezekiel, that there is going to be a coming conqueror, a coming king, and every knee is going to bow before the great Messiah of God, the Son of Man, who is coming. And so uh, we'll go more into the detail of uh, the book of Ezekiel next week onwards. Um, But for now, let's hold on to this sort of sense of history. God is the Lord, and one day the nations will know and will bow before him. And for us, it's worth remembering that if we put our trust in God, if we put our trust in Christ, we're on the right side of history. No matter what's going on around us, no matter what the newspapers may say, no matter what our peers or friends may say, he is God, he is Lord. And as you worship him now, as you take communion, You're on the right side of a history which is inevitably coming to a conclusion ordained by God and which will be glorious and is his history, his story. May God bless his word to us today in Jesus' name.